everybody. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I'm delighted to say um, uh, tonight's speaker is a, a good friend and colleague of mine, Hannah Storm, is director of the International New Safety Institute, uh, which is a, a, an NGO who works with news organisations and trains, trains freelancers around the world in best practice and safe working in hostile environments of all kinds. Uh, full disclosure, I'm chair of the International Safety Institute, or INSEE as it's called, so we work together a lot. Uh, Hannah uh, has uh, a lot of experience. She works as a, as a uh, freelancer and indeed on, on staff in Latin, Latin America and Central America as a correspondent for uh, ITV, Reuters, BBC, The Times, outlets like that. She's also worked for Oxfam, so there's something like the development agenda as well. Uh, and she's here today because she's <coughs> co-authored with Robert Pickard, who was Rasmus's predecessor as director of research here at the Reuters uh, Institute, uh, a book about uh, the increasing risk of kidnapping for journalists. So that's what she's going to be talking about today. The kidnapping of journalists reporting from high-risk conflict zones, uh, a topic of a new book just out. So, Hannah, Thank welcome. you, Richard. Thanks. And thank you, everybody. And very much, very much gratitude for the for warm welcome here. Um, Richard has explained a little bit about the work that INSEE does, the charity that I'm the director of. Um, its priority is the safety of journalists. It's been set up for about 12, 13 years, and we have worked throughout that time on issues of safety, and particularly on issues such as kidnapping. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit today about this book, book here that some of you have may have seen, that I co-authored with, with Robert. But a little bit of background first. On numerous occasions throughout 2013 and 2014, I had conversations with journalists and news managers about the threat of kidnapping, how it was increasing in the Middle East, particularly in Syria. One of the biggest issues at the time was the paucity of information coming out of Syria. Now, some of that was down to media blackouts. Some of that was the constantly changing allegiances, the fact it was so dangerous that there was no real way journalists could share the kind of information that would have been helpful to try to keep them safe. But it wasn't until later on in 2014 when James Foley and Stephen Sotloff were brutally murdered that it really felt like organisations and the world at large were taking the threat seriously. In response to this shift in mindset, we decided at INSEE to undertake a research project. It was a quantitative survey and a qualitative report made up of in-depth in interviews, and we called it Under Threat, The Changing State of Media Safety. It's on the INSEE website. I'll give you the uh, website details if anybody wants them later on. But it looked at how different the world was now for journalists compared with how it had been in 2003, at the start of the Iraq War, when INSEE was set up. It concluded that journalism has never been more dangerous, and those we spoke with said that they'd never felt so unsafe doing their jobs. The research done for that report found that 1,480 journalists and media workers had died during the preceding 10 years, an average of 131 a year. One of the biggest concerns shared by news managers and journalists alike was that of kidnap. And so to this publication on that topic, by the beginning of 2015, it was clear that journalists were increasingly vulnerable to kidnap. we just learned of the brutal murder of the Japanese freelance journalist Kenji Goto. His murder, along with those of Stephen and James, had illustrated the threats and the vulnerability brutally and starkly. What wasn't so clear, though, was exactly why journalists were so vulnerable and what could be done to make them less so. Nor was it clear exactly how individuals and organisations could try to mitigate the risks of kidnap or prepare themselves to deal with it if it happened to them and their colleagues. 
nor had much work been done on some of the more complex related issues around what happens or doesn't happen in terms of coverage if a journalist is kidnapped, and the manner in which the decisions of all those involved are affected by a complex web of interests. So these are all interests, these are all areas that we decided to explore in the kidnapping of journalists, and I'd like to touch on some of them now. The publication also includes the compelling stories of several journalists themselves kidnapped and provides learning from their experiences and advice and good practice. I'm not going to go into the details of the stories of Anthony, Miguel, Colin, David or Kirsten because each of them merits more time than we have now, but I'd like to pay tribute to them. Getting individuals to talk about their experiences like this can be a real challenge, as we found, and asking relatives as well to relive their experiences can be even more complicated. But I do encourage you to read about their experiences if you have time, because they're all different and they're all compelling testaments to their bravery. <coughs> so why did we decide to write this book now? Well, most of you will probably realise that the kidnapping of journalists isn't a new thing. We saw it in Lebanon in the 80s and 90s with the kidnapping of Terry Anderson, David Hurst of The Guardian, Charles Glass, later Daniel Pearl of The Wall Street Journal was detained and beheaded in Pakistan, and Jill Carroll of The Christian Science Monastery was held in Iraq. So as I say, it's not a new phenomenon, but it is a more significant issue now because of the scale of the threat in some areas of the world, and the fact that in the Middle East, at least, when journalists are kidnapped, their role moves quickly from being the storyteller to being the story. Journalists are highly vulnerable because they often work in dangerous locations, in order to do their jobs effectively, they seek access to both sides of the conflict, which may offend opposing parties. And because of the difficulty of access, they may have to rely on shadowy groups or people to carry out their work. Matters are compounded still further when the loyalties of combatant groups change frequently, as they have done throughout the conflict in Syria. In addition to this, journalists are sometimes accused of being spies. Although this is often incorrect, it is viable as some security agencies have used journalistic covers for their employees. So we're talking here about the kidnapping of journalists in conflict, but it's worth noting that of the journalists kidnapped around the world, many are kidnapped during peacetime and in their own countries. According to figures from Reporters Sans Frontières in 2014, 119 professional journalists were kidnapped. This was an increase from 87 the previous year. The top countries were Ukraine, Libya, Syria, Iraq and Mexico. 90% of those kidnapped were domestic. This coincides with an increase in violence against journalists worldwide. In many instances where local journalists are concerned, there is a deliberate attempt to silence them. In this instance, there is often no demand for money or policy change in return for their safe release. This is a brazen warning to others. Don't mess with us. Although this issue is extremely important, it's not the primary focus of this book that we've written, which is mainly concerned with the kidnapping of journalists in regions of conflict by combatants for ransom or hostage. This type of kidnapping puts particular and significant types of pressure on the wide range of people exposed to and affected by it. And this growing use of journalists as hostages to pressure governments and to obtain ransoms creates significantly different safety challenges and also leads to a reduction of insightful coverage of developments in certain regions. So this creates a direct threat to press freedom and to journalists being able to do their jobs. So I mentioned before, in recent years, concern has been growing about the threat of kidnapping and the wider related issue of safety. And this has occurred at an international level as well as an industri industry one. At the international level, the UN Security Council passed a resolution in 2015 
calling for the protection of journalists in areas of armed conflict, the release of those held hostage, and urging governments to act against those who attack journalists. Alongside this, UNESCO has been spearheading a UN-wide plan to highlight the issue of safety of journalists and related problems such as rampant impunity. At the industry level, along with the growing concern in news organisations, came the realisation that most are poorly equipped to deal with kidnaps. Few have crisis management plan plans in place, and that makes it hard to respond in the crucial early moments of the kidnap when so much is changing so quickly. Larger organisations have some plans. Most of these plans have come about by prior experience, but they often have little ability to swiftly recover journalists. So why this growing trend of journalists kidnapped in these locations and what is it that the kidnappers want? It can be money, the release of prisoners, national apologies, a change in government policy. It can be more, more than one of these, and it can change, just as the groups holding the journalists can also change. In fact, the trading of journalists between particular groups has been a real feature of the Arab Spring, or the Arab uprisings. Even if their capture can be both premeditated and opportunistic, one thing is certain. Journalists have made attractive targets and continue to do so. The capture of journalists gets unnoticed. The spate of journalist kidnappings in the last few years has raised questions about the practice of journalism in high-risk areas, the responsibilities of employers to journalists and the responsibility of journalists to themselves in terms of the relevant training and equipment. It's also raised ethical questions around whether news organisations are more, more or less willing to cover the capture of their own and the thorny issue of media blackouts, which I'll come back to a little later on. But it also raises questions about these individuals as humans first. People involved in a complex matrix of competing interests. And I'd like to look at this for a few moments, because this underpins a great deal about how the kidnapping of journalists ultimately plays out. I think one of the crucial things that came out of this publication is quite how many different stakeholders can be involved when a journalist is kidnapped. In these instances, this might typically include the journalists, their families, their employers, their government, insurance firms and recovery teams, and the interests of these diverse groups are often very hard to balance. One of the most complicated parts of the equation tends to be the relations that governments have with families, employers and individuals during a kidnapping. Families and news organisations need to engage with governments. However, tensions often appear because these two groups rarely see eye to eye. The families and employers want the captured individual to be returned, and so there's generally a great emotional weight attributed to that over other factors. The families of kidnapped journalists are also likely to experience great stress and uncertainty, and because of their close emotional involvement, they're often not, they're, they are not often asked to play central role in investigations and negotiations. Sometimes choices are made to withhold certain information to protect them from emotional pressures. However, they usually remain informed partners, and it may be left to them to take the riskiest decisions when private recovery efforts take place, though they are usually less involved when government security forces are involved in recovery. The family also needs to be considered after the resolution of the kidnapping, because they may, may well need support in various forms. The government, on the other hand, needs to balance the recovery of the individual with foreign policy interests, terrorism policy interests, security interests. That balancing act can be made still more complicated by the tendency of some kidnappers to use captives to pressure governments. 
Not all governments are the same, however. They differ in terms of their approach to negotiations and ransoms, with some taking the lead, others refusing to negotiate or consider ransoms, and some even making it difficult for private parties to get involved in any negotiation or ransom process. In the United States, government agencies like the State Department and the FBI have traditionally liaised with and briefed families and companies. However, they've also had a tendency not to get too involved, and they've often used their relations with the families and colleagues to gain other kinds of intelligence. Some European governments have been more involved, where they are more open to negotiations and payments than the US or UK. However, in these instances, they're faced with a dilemma. Do they pay the ransom? and risk encouraging more kidnappings of their citizens, or do they refuse to pay and risk the life of the captured individual? The particularly thorny nature of this dilemma was exposed when it became known that James Foley and Stephen Sotloff had been killed just a few months after the release of several French journalists who had been held with them. The US government had refused to negotiate with the captors of Sotloff and Foley, and along with the UK government, it had taken the lead in calling for a banning of ransom payments to prescribed groups. As a bit of background here, in 2013, the G8 group of countries agreed not to pay ransoms. In January 2014, the UN Security Council passed Resolution 2133, calling on member states to prevent terrorists from benefiting directly or indirectly from ransom payments or from political concessions. So back to the case of the French hostages kept with uh, Sotloff and Foley. France has never officially confirmed ransom payments. However, like France, other countries are believed to have found ways to channel funds that have facilitated the release of kidnapped individuals. It's worth noting that, mo noting that more than 20 other hostages were held at the same time as Foley and Sotloff, Danish, German, Spanish and Italian nationals, including other journalists. They were all released between February 2014, when the French journalists were set free, and February 2015, when news emerged about the death of another US hostage, Kayla Muller, who had been held by the same group. One of the French hostages, Nicolas Henna, who was released six months before Foley was killed, later gave an interview to the BBC, in which he said, and I quote, Some countries like America, but also like the UK, do not negotiate, and well, they put their people at risk. End quote. However, as we've seen, the answer is not clear-cut. Those who do pay, or who find ways to channel funds, may stand accused of funding terrorism. And while negotiations and ransom payments may increase the likelihood of hostages being released, it also increases the likelihood of more people being kidnapped, particularly of the same nationality. And it's likely to raise the price tag on those others being held. In this instance, it can be a particularly difficult pill to swallow for families where the burden of paying a ransom may fall to them if their own government refuses. In the case of the United States, the pressures were even more complex because families, companies or private organisations that paid could stand accused of funding terrorism and face prosecutions. In fact, the family of James Foley were threatened and his mother Diane told ABC, no ABC News... It just made me realise that these people talking to us had no idea what it was like to be the family of someone abducted. I'm sure the US official didn't mean it the way he said it, but we were between a rock and a hard place. We were told we could do nothing. Meanwhile, our son was being beaten and tortured every day. In light of this and other criticisms, the US government began to review its policies regarding support to families. It had extensive conversations with lots of different groups of people, including some of the families themselves, and it compiled a series of recommendations, which included a single point of contact for families to guide them through the process, as well as better access to services such as counselling, travel assistance and support for financial management.
In June 2015, the government announced it was lifting the threat of prosecution, though it did not seek a change in the law. I mentioned that the UK government refuses to pay ransoms or negotiate. In 2014, the Home Secretary, Theresa May, announced that UK-based companies would be banned from paying out on claims linked to ransom payments for prescribed organisations. However, in reality, little changed with this announcement, since funding was already illegal. Even though they do not negotiate and do not pay ransoms, both the UK and the US have been behind attempts to rescue hostages. Successful attempts have been overshadowed by those that failed. In the case of Foley, US Special Forces staged an attempt the month before he was killed. There are other incidents that we write about in the publication. So I've talked a bit about families and government. I'd like to turn now to how media organisations respond to kidnapping. This depends on multiple factors, but the most important are whether they've prepared for the potential of a kidnap, whether they have a contingency plan in place, and whether or not they have something called kidnap and ransom insurance. This last one is particularly important because if it exists, it tends to direct how the response is organised. News organisations need to consider and prepare beforehand for all possible safety risks, including kidnapping. They need to ensure the journalists they deploy are adequately trained. I'll come back to this when I touch on the good practice section of the book. And they need to ensure there are, as I said, contingency plans in place. This plan should include a basic outline of how the organisation will arrange its response, who will be responsible for it, what resources will be available, and what the basic strategy will be. Although the details of the entire plan don't need to be known by everyone in the organisation, it's really important that the whole organisation knows if a contingency plan exists. This helps ensure that no information is disseminated that might cause harm to the captured journalist if it transpires that relatively junior staff, a secretary for example, or those not involved in a future crisis management team find out about the incident before anybody else knows about it and perhaps do something on social media. Now to kidnap and ransom insurance itself. This is a specialised and quite complicated, I found out, form of insurance that is confidential, politically sensitive and usually underwritten offshore. When a company has it, the exact type of insurance they have and the way it's accessed becomes part of the contingency plan. So kidnap and ransom insurance, which are often spoken of as the same idea, actually involves two types of insurance and they're usually bought together. The first is linked to the costs associated with the kidnapping and offers basically unlimited consultancy, which can be extremely costly in long drawn out kidnaps. The second involves reimbursement of the ransom. And this is a commonly misunderstood idea because it effectively means that even if you have the insurance and you're going to pay the ransom, you have to find the money for the ransom before you get the money back. Slightly complicated, but something, as I say, a lot of people have misunderstood. So the individuals who are covered don't know who they are for security reasons and because if they did know, the price tag might come even higher and the companies don't broadcast the fact that they have it. When a kidnapping occurs, the named consultancy firm starts work immediately. If there is no insurance, then news organisations can directly contract the consultancy. Because of the very specific nature of the work they do, there are only a very small number of legitimate organisations providing these services, many of them based in the UK, many of them ex-police services, police forces rather. Consultants can immediately deploy to the main location where a crisis management team will be and establish the team along with members of the insured or contracting parties. And this team may include family members, but typically doesn't. An important early decision that a news organisation will need to make is who will represent it. As soon as this is agreed, the individual's name needs to be communicated widely. 
So the first priority in any of these instances is to determine if the journalist is alive. You may have heard the phrase proof of life. Determine who the, if the journalist is alive and who is holding them. In the past few years, the situation in Syria has made this first step fraught with difficulty since basic information has been really hard to come by and shifting allegiances and front lines means that news managers may not even know who they're dealing with at any one time. Once proof of life is ascertained, the focus shifts to where the journalist is being held and how communication with the kidnappers can take place. For the consultants and the crisis management team, one of the key challenges is constantly evaluating the information and the misinformation, something that's been compounded by social media. Once the identity of the kidnappers and the general location of the hostage is established, the crisis management team then needs to deal with questions about what options exist in order to obtain the release of the kidnapped individual or individuals. It's important for the consultant family and media organisations to develop a strong relationship, but best practice requires that the organisation and family retain control of the decisions because they have to live with the consequences of what they decide. And again, with regard to ransom, there's no easy answer about whether or not to pay. In some countries, like the UK and the US, consultants may actually have to race against the government to get to the families first. However, ultimately, it's down to the client to decide whether to pay, and the consultant advises. It's worth noting that initial demands are often watered down, and it's also important to know that when ransom payments are agreed, and even if the money is there, Getting it together and handing it over is not that easy because of rules around money laundering and the practicality of crossing borders with vast sums of money. Regarding these difficult decisions, there is no best practice. One thing is certain, however, whatever responsibility and pressure news organisations feel pales by comparison with the anxiety of families. And even after the ransom, the release itself is unlikely to be smooth and the organisation will need to commit to supporting the individual and his or her family in the longer term in a number of ways. So while on the subject of news organisations, the coverage of the kidnapping of journalists raises significant questions. These include the amount and type of information conveyed by the media, questions about whether or not the abductions of journalists should be handled any differently from those of non-journalists, and the issue of media blackouts. This publication that we wrote explores how coverage varies according to the environment in which the abduction or kidnapping takes place, but I'm going to focus my attention for the moment on the issue of kidnappings in unstable locations, because this is where the challenges of coverage are greatest. Research has shown that press coverage itself does not cause acts of terrorism to occur, but it's sometimes used by perpetrators for their purposes, and it can make authorities' responses more difficult. In addition, as we've seen with some of the IS propaganda, some terrorist organisations are now bypassing traditional media. In most unstable locations, the lack of information and the abundance of misinformation increases the pressures on reporting of kidnaps. However, when it does happen, the coverage of kidnaps tends to fall into four distinct stages. The initial disappearance, the captivity, negotiations, and finally the resolution. The initial reports are usually limited to the fact the individual is missing and mention of his or her employer. However, they may feature limited information about the abduction and sometimes speculation about the captors. The longer the kidnapping lasts, the greater the challenges are to sustained visibility and managing the flow of information and misinformation. In addition, the wishes and demands of the families, employers, kidnapped journalists or security advisers need to be managed and may put a strain on the coverage as well. 
The extent to which coverage takes place, and even if it takes place at all, is influenced by the circumstances of the kidnapping, its political salience, the wishes of the family, the news organisation and the kidnappers too, as well as accepted media practices. The coverage, or its absence, is also influenced by pressure from government agencies and security advisers. Coverage of the kidnapping can bring benefits, such as inducing new leads or contact from the kidnappers. However, it can also bring false leads or copycat incidents that may risk others working in the area. On the flip side, media blackouts tend to reduce the value of the hostage to the kidnappers if they're using them for publicity. They tend to reduce the pressure on kidnappers during negotiations. During the kidnapping of David Rode, who's mentioned in the book, a media blackout was held for eight months before he escaped. With Stephen Sotloff, a strict blackout was maintained in part because his employer and colleagues wanted to withhold information that he was Jewish and a dual US-Israeli citizen, information which would have greatly endangered him. A blackout was also kept for the first six weeks of James Foley's kidnapping in 2012. Much has been written and argued about media blackouts, and some people feel particularly strongly opposed to them, arguing that they compromise the public's right to be informed. Their many arguments in support of them say they should be used, if not having them might endanger those held. There are disparate views about whether news organisations should agree to withhold information or deliberately provide incomplete information. However, most people we've spoken with agree that any decisions must be made on a case-by-case basis and by those involved in the kidnapping. One significant issue surrounding media blackouts emerged in 2013, when more than a dozen cases of the kidnapping of journalists in Syria were being kept secret. Not just from the public, but from other news organisations as well. At the time, the Committee to Protect Journalists decided to do something about this. Although it recognised there could be benefits from keeping quiet, especially during negotiations, it also realised it needed to warn others about how dangerous Syria had become. So it released the total number of journalists being held without releasing the name and personal circumstances. Blackouts can have an unintended consequence of camouflaging the actual dangers of the situation, said Rob Marney, CPJ's deputy director at the time. When the kidnappings of Stephen Sotloff and James Foley ended in their brutal murders, news organisations were also faced with other ethical considerations, whether they should share or use any of the videos that the kidnappers had publicly posted online. Many news organisations debated these issues at length, and central to their decision were company values about decency, privacy at the moment of death, and the effects on family, colleagues and the public. In determining how to cover a kidnapping at any stage, there are a number of questions editors and news managers need to ask. Should the coverage of foreign kidnappings differ from domestic? Should the kidnapping of journalists be given more prominence than that of other individuals? Should the coverage of a member of your own staff or a freelancer colleague differ from other news organisations? How does a media blackout affect public understanding and journalists' perception of risk? And if co- coverage is limited, how do you explain this after the event? All of these questions require a careful consideration of the related issues of ethics, safety and justice, and it's helpful to have answers to them before it actually happens, because under the pressure of a kidnapping, it's very difficult to make those kind of decisions. Fortunately, news organisations and individuals are not being left alone to tackle these challenges by themselves. There are a number of international organisations that help journalists better understand the risks they face and mitigate them. Some, like INSEE, the one I work for, provide advice, information and training. Others, like the Committee to Protect Journalists, who I mentioned before, work more on an advocacy level to promote press freedom and defend journalists in danger. 
While it's not in the specific mandate of these organisations to resolve kidnappings, their networks and collective experience can often prove extremely valuable to news organisations when they're dealing with safety issues. They can also help them agree common guidelines and good practice where they do not have such. Although most major news organisations have safety guidelines for their employees, the growing reliance on freelancers and their increased vulnerability led last year to the creation of an industry alliance called ACOS, a culture of safety it stands for, which agreed a set of global safety standards. The standards, which were endorsed by some of the world's largest news organisations, offer suggestions for journalists on dangerous assignments and for news organisations sending journalists to dangerous places. Other organisations have similar guidelines, and these are detailed in the book, but it's worth bearing in mind that these are helpful for all aspects of safety, not just the avoidance of kidnap. The book concludes with a section on good practice for journalists and employers, so this is where I'll conclude my thoughts. How the industry responds to the threat of kidnapping is crucial to the safety of our colleagues and to ensuring that the public continues to hear about what's happening in the darkest corners of the world. Employers are responsible for the security of the employees and freelancers they oversee, and they must ensure they receive the relevant training and equipment to operate safely from hostile environments. This is a moral responsibility and a legal one, though they generally assume lower legal responsibility for freelancers. Individual journalists also need to be responsible for ensuring they're adequately prepared, that they exercise caution and minimise harm to themselves and their employers by the decisions they make. Preparing, as I mentioned earlier, includes training and equipment, but it also includes an effective threat assessment and a communications plan as well, as the understanding that both individual and news organisations be prepared to say stop if the risks become too great. I've touched on the increasing reliance of news organisations on freelancers, but they are particularly vulnerable because they often do not have inst institutional support, although the global standards I referenced earlier go some way to addressing that, as have efforts by groups such as the Rory Peck Trust, we might have heard of. Still, INSEE has found that in almost 80% of cases, sorry, that almost 80% of people surveyed believed freelancers faced a bigger threat of kidnapping now than a decade ago. Because of the prevalence of digital media, preparation also requires being aware of digital footprints and that information online and social media does not compromise journalists or their colleagues. Journalists working in dangerous places should sanitise their equipment, carry a spare clean phone and ensure geolocators are removed. They should also be careful of what images are public, publicly accessible, both of themselves, their friends, family and contacts. It would be easy to wring our hands and say enough, the world is too dangerous, we can't go on reporting from these places. Some news organisations have decided to cease deployments to certain areas of the world, deeming them to be too dangerous. But surely this isn't the answer, and surely this compromises the role of journalists, of holding the powerful to account and of shining a light in the darkest corners of society. Still, journalists and news managers faced with these threats need to seriously consider at what cost they are covering dangerous locations, balancing their moral and ethical obligations with sensible and sensitive planning. One final thought. The research into this book taught us that no journalist can ever be completely prepared for the personal, financial and organisational toll created by kidnapping. But understanding the phenomenon, preparing for the possibility can reduce the risks and can smooth an organisation's response should one occur. Attacks on journalists and their kidnappings would not continue unless perpetrators believed our jobs were meaningful and important. The fact that despite these risks, journalists are still prepared to enter conflict zones and risk their lives to tell stories, a testament to the importance of news and information. Thank you.